most of you are aware, some of you are aware, uh, I've been gone for about a month, so I've had at least a month, actually I've been thinking about this for a long time, uh, but I've had at least a month to think of a really cool title for a series of messages on First and Second Timothy, and I just couldn't think of anything awesome. Um, I've been trying to think of something cool and that would get you to come and get you fired up about it, and I just can't, couldn't think of anything, uh, thinking of something graphically that would just really inspire you, and it, uh, I've, I've had jet lag, and I couldn't think of anything. So we're going to call this series over the next few weeks, My Dear Son, because when Paul wrote this letter, that's how he began the letter. He was writing uh, to his spiritual son, Timothy. And uh, he was writing some thoughts to him. Today we're going to particularly look at uh, 2 Timothy. And we're just going to spend some time camping out in 2 Timothy. This is something that I love to do. Oftentimes uh, we do various sermon series. And it's hard because we get in a hurry sometimes because we're trying to cover a lot of information. And I have a really bad tendency uh, as, a, as a Bible teacher, as a preacher, uh, to try to just jam-pack way too much into a sermon, and so I'm going to do my best to just, just put it into low gear over the next couple of weeks, and we're just going to really dig deep into this letter um, that Paul writes to Timothy. Second Timothy is absolutely fascinating to me because there's so much really rich um, theology that's in Second Timothy, but then there's also this relationship that Paul has with Timothy. And, and the, the occasion that Paul is writing to Timothy is so, it's so unique. See, Paul is uh, he's in jail in Rome a couple times now, and uh, he's, kind of, he's kind of at this phase of his life where he knows, he knows he's going to be put to death sometime soon. Um, he gets, keeps getting thrown in jail, and, um, and they keep threatening to kill him, and and it's really become a very difficult situation for him because from a worldly perspective, uh, now look, we, we have this ability to read the Bible hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, and we read uh, the letters that Paul wrote to the church, and we know about the ministry of Paul, and we've got these hundreds of years past to look back and think, Paul, the great apostle Paul, he was such a success. He helped start the church and exist all over the world. But you got to understand that when Paul was writing to Timothy, particularly 2 Timothy, he really, from an earthly perspective, he really was writing from a place of failure. Most of the people around him thought he was done for. They thought he was a failure. They thought his ministry was over and they had abandoned him. His ministry, from an earthly perspective at that point, wasn't a success. Everybody, or most of the people, he says it in 2 Timothy, everybody's abandoned him. He's in jail. All of his closest friends, all of his confidants, people that he had invested in in ministry, people that he had given his life to, had turned their back on him. Churches that he had planted had actually had him thrown in jail. The church at Ephesus, the occasion for Paul writing to 2 Timothy, the people at the church at Ephesus were the ones who had Paul, the leaders of the church at Ephesus are the ones who had Paul thrown in jail. So from a worldly perspective, like if we were, like let's say it was 2022 and someone was judging the ministry success of a, an apostle or a preacher or a pastor 
This is the one that all of us would be like, nah, God's not with him. I mean, if God was with him, his church, his church wouldn't be shrinking, his church would be growing. If God was with him, he wouldn't be in jail. If God was with him, he would be successful, right? Because according to the world's standards of success, Paul wasn't meeting those. His ministry was shrinking, it wasn't growing. His influence was diminished, it wasn't increasing. Everything was bad about this situation. So Paul is writing to Timothy from a place of what appeared to the world or what would, and like if you and I, I know we got perspective, it's all these years later, it's really hard for us to be honest. But if we would be honest, if we would be honest and it were 2022 and we were talking about a person in ministry who was in prison, everyone had abandoned them, everyone called them a fraud, everyone said their theology was crazy, we would look at that person and we would say they were a failure. There was all kinds of lies. There was all kinds of rumors about him. Here he was in prison. And about the only thing he had left was this relationship with his spiritual son, Timothy, who, by the way, he had sent to pastor a dysfunctional church that had had him thrown in jail. So his most beloved disciple he had given the most impossible assignment. And he was there being abused. The same people who hated Paul, hated Timothy, and were causing difficulty for him. And Timothy was on the verge of literally a nervous breakdown. He was on the verge of losing it because he was under the great weight of the mess of the church at Ephesus and the exact same opposition that Paul was facing. And so here Paul is, he's in jail, he's physically depleted, he's mentally depleted, he's emotionally depleted, he's spiritually depleted, but he's, he's thinking of his spiritual son who's right in the middle of the heat of the battle and he's writing to him to encourage him, keep going, don't quit. Don't give up the things you've, taught, you've been taught, the things you believe, the things we stand for are true, even if everybody else says they're a lie. That's the occasion of 2 Timothy. You and I read it all these hundreds of years later, and we're like, oh, the great minister Paul and his work and his ministry, it was awesome. Just for a moment, let's take ourselves back to that circumstance. Let's take ourselves back to that situation. What must have it felt like to live in a world where everything you taught and you believed didn't seem to be working? Church growth wasn't happening. The company you started was failing. The things you believed seemed crazy to everybody else. And yet you are supposed to just keep persevering. You're just supposed to keep Going. In 1985, there were two economists who um, wrote a book about leadership, and um, they 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 were they were professional economists. They had studied obviously the economies of the world. They really were responding to the great recessions of of the 70s, inflation, stagflation coming out of that in the 80s, and the complexities of what was going on. And they wrote this book on leadership. 
uh, trying to get the message out there to leaders and managers. How do, you, how do you lead and you manage in a world where there's hyperinflation, when everything we thought we knew about economies and the way the world was supposed to work isn't working, and we're supposed to lead in this environment? And so they wrote this book, and when they wrote this book, they created a term uh, called VUCA. Everyone say VUCA. It is spelled exactly the way it sounds, or at least the way I think it sounds with my accent. V-U-C-A, VUCA. It is an acronym, and it stands for, V stands for volatile. Everyone say volatile. Volatile meaning everything is constantly changing. Now, these are globally renowned economists who are responding to a world that is that is crazy, that is upside down, that people cannot wrap their brains around this economy. You don't know if the market's going up. You don't know if it's going down. You don't know if you should invest in commodities or stocks or bonds. You don't know where you should put your money because everything is volatile. You stood for uncertain. Everyone say uncertain. Nothing is predictable. Well, if you know anything about if you know anything about economics, if you know anything about business, we, we strive for, we hope for certainty, right? Because if we, can, if we can predict where things are going, then we know where to invest our money. If I can predict, if I can predict the, the next housing wave, then I can invest my money where, where people are going to want houses and in the kind of houses that people are going to want. If I know what's coming next in, in the auto industry, then I know where to invest my money, right? But when the world is unpredictable, you don't know what to do, much less how to lead. C, so V-U-C, C stands for complex. Everyone say complex. Everything is multi-layered. It's harder uh, to understand Be- because of... And, I mean, think about it in 2022, because of the connectivity of things, uh, everything is connected. So everything has so many layers, it's hard to comprehend what to do, where to do it, how to do it, because everything is so complicated. And then A stands for ambiguous. Everything is contradictory. Everything is paradoxical. You can't wrap your mind around anything. So they wrote this book in 1985, and they described a global environment that was VUCA. Everyone say VUCA. It's going to be a new word. You're going to embrace it. When, when things just start going haywire in your life, you're just going to look up and you're going to say, this week when petrol prices go up, you're just going to look up and say, it's not a swear word. This is okay. It's a technical business and leadership term. We're good. Paul was writing to Timothy in a time of VUCA, nothing made sense. Jesus had met him, changed his life. He sacrificed everything. He did what he was supposed to do. He traveled the world. He preached the gospel. He started churches. 
He discipled people. He loved people. He sacrificed. He served. He went and he ministered places. And unlike the other great apostles and prophets of his day, he wouldn't take a salary from anyone anywhere. He just went and he served and he made tents and he demonstrated humbly the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet all of these people that he had done all of this work for and had served so faithfully and with integrity and with character all turned their back on him and, and put him back in jail again. The gospel message that he preached of Jesus Christ, which was pure, which was pure, which was pure, they rejected it. He demonstrated it. He lived it. He had taught them this gospel, and they rejected it. Here Timothy is as his disciple who was just doing what he had been discipled to do and what he had seen done his entire life. Here he is at this church at Ephesus that is completely turned upside down. The people there are following heretics instead of following Jesus, much less Paul. It was volatile. It was unpredictable. It was complex. It was ambiguous. I remember earlier this year, I introduced this term to our staff. I, I do not believe there um, in my lifetime has ever uh, been a season of uh, that or a word that describes the season that we live in like VUCA. The reason I want to spend some time in 2 Timothy is because it is this intimate letter, but I believe during this intimate letter, Paul is writing from this place and addressing this situation of VUCA, and I believe that in 2022, we live in that same environment. I think we live in an environment that is highly volatile. Let's just make it even more personal. I think inside the church, we live in a season of high volatility. I think that, I think we are pulled and drawn in all kinds of different directions. And I believe that with the failures and the mistakes of people that we have put our trust in as leaders, oftentimes it is unpredictable. I don't know what book to recommend to you because I don't know what great Christian leader is going to fail. I don't know whose podcasts to encourage you to listen to because I don't know what great Christian leader is swindling or embezzling or raping somebody. It's unpredictable. As the church... This season that we're in, it's complex. There's layers to everything. I made a comment a few weeks ago about the fact that, that I absolutely, in my spirit, know beyond a shadow of a doubt, God has been speaking to me for some time, that we must take some time as a church and, and spend some time learning about biblical sexuality. We have to, I have to teach you about that. We have to, as a church, have a conversation about that. Do you have any idea how complex that conversation is? The layers and the risks that exist just by us having the conversation. But if we don't have the conversation, where does that leave you? Where does it leave your children? We live in a world that's incredibly complex inside the church, splintered 
ambiguous. You can roll up to a church, walk in, and spend months there and have no idea what they really believe. I think that's one of the saddest states of the church is that you can rock up to a church and spend months and have no idea what their theology is. Because it's so ambiguous, we find ourselves camping out in the ambiguity because we don't want to stake a position on anything because if we do stake a position on anything, it might run some people off. It's, it's exactly the situation that, that Paul was writing to Timothy. There were these theological issues that Paul was just saying, this is the gospel. This is what we believe. And there were people in Ephesus and in the church world at the time who were trying to take things that were basic concepts of the gospel and turn it into these endless debates and conversations that diluted the deity of Jesus Christ and made unclear what was simple. Can I tell you something? Get this in your spirit. If you don't get anything else today, get this. Simple isn't stupid. But we live in a world that says if anything is simple, it must be stupid. We strive for complexity. And so there are some of us, like Timothy, who grew up in this faith and with this faith expression. And, and we'll talk about it here in a minute where he just learned these things from childhood. He just learned to believe in Jesus from childhood. It was so clear from childhood. I believe in Jesus, follow Jesus, trust Jesus. And he grew up in that environment and it was passed down to him and it was rooted in his soul. But now he's in Ephesus and there's all these endless conversations and all these endless debates and all this endless complexity that was causing him and others to question the simplicity of the gospel. And I believe it's exactly where we're at in the church world in today, in 2022. That unless it's complex, it must not be true. And all the while, Paul is saying it's, it's not complex at all. It's, it's simple. Let's, let's dig into it. So Paul Writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. To Timothy, my dear son. That's such a clever title, isn't it? Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I could, I could just stay all day right there. It's simple. It's simple. And everything that is garbage tries to make it complex. I, I want you to get this so deeply in your heart. Anything, anything that contradicts the simplicity that God is Father and that Christ is Lord is an immediate red flag. I don't need to be involved in this conversation because it's worthless. I don't need to sit around and engage and try and listen to people who just want to sound smart. Who just want to talk nonsense. Answer me a question. 
is God Father and Christ Lord. If you can't just say yes to that, there's no reason for us to talk. I shouldn't talk to unbelievers. No, please understand what I'm saying. This letter is to somebody inside the church talking about conversations going on to people who are supposedly inside the church. This isn't about how we engage unbelievers. These were people who were pretending, hear me, pretending to be believers. Of course I engage with people who are non-believers who don't believe that God is Father and who don't believe that Jesus our Lord. That's not what 2 Timothy is about. It's about people inside the church who are trying to create gray in areas that are very clearly black and white. God is Father, Jesus is Lord. Don't have time for that. I ain't got time for that. I don't know. I think God my serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers recalling your tears I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy I am reminded get this of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Living and dying with clarity in a world where there is immeasurable ambiguity is a transgenerational gift of grace. Think, think, think about what we've learned already. Paul was a failure in prison. I know he's a success. He's the great apostle Paul. At that time in history, he was not a success. He was a failure. Read First and Second Timothy. Read the letters. He had been abandoned by everybody. Everybody said, Paul, we don't trust you anymore. We, we're not going to be on the Paul bandwagon anymore. You're in jail for the second time. You're going out. Your ministry's a failure. The people, the churches that he had planted helped put him in prison, didn't want anything to do with him. He was not the great apostle Paul at that time. He was a felon. He was in jail. He was a suspect. No one believed him, and in that place, he said this, I have a clear conscience. Some of us pull up to our houses in our fancy cars. We go into our house, we sit at our table, and we eat whatever we want to eat. We lay in our fluffy bed at night. And we close our eyes and we have all of the trappings of success. Everyone would look at our life and say, she's a success. He's a success. But when we close our eyes at night, we can't say what Paul said. I've got a clear conscience. Imagine. Imagine what it must be like to be writing to your dear son when everyone else in your life 
thinks you're a failure and be able to say, my conscience is clear. Do you, do you understand what that means? He said, I, I don't have regrets. I'm not, I'm not wrestling with my failures. I'm not wrestling with my mistakes. I'm not wrestling with the fact that all of these people have abandoned me, that no one wants to have anything to do with me, that everyone says that my ministry is a failure. Paul writes to Timothy, my dear son, and says, my conscience is clear. How does somebody do that? How does someone live with a clear conscience? How does someone live with no regrets? How does someone, go away, get this, get this. I have some sons, I have some daughters. Right now, I'm gonna just let you in on a little of my world. Um, when we left to fly home, my daughter's car, she has a cute little car, and it looks cute on Instagram. But but when you get up close to it, in its day, it was awesome. But it's been through it. And my daddy heart can barely take it because I know how bad a shape that car's in, and I feel very concerned about, just being honest with you, her safety driving the car. It's one of those, you know, first car, rough it out a little bit situations, but it's gone a little too far. And being on the other side of the planet, knowing that my daughter is in that car, my conscience is not clear. Look, I, I know what it's like to write to your children or for your children to be in difficult situations. And sometimes you have no control over what got your kids into one of the situations they're in. But sometimes as a parent, you do have control over the situation. Sometimes as a parent, you can step in and you should step in. Knowing that that line is often hard, but imagine... This situation, Paul had specifically assigned Timothy to go pastor the most difficult church on the planet. The one that had sent him to jail. The one with the worst deacon elder in the entire world. Paul had said, my dear son, I'm sending you like a sheep to the slaughter. And my conscience is clear doing so. I, ooh, imagine that. You got to know that you know that you know what you know. If you're able to live with a clear conscience. And yet Paul is able to say that to Timothy. He's able to say this gospel that we're preaching, this message that we're sharing, this truth that we're living in spite of the opposition. Timothy, I'm living in peace. I'm living in peace because I know what is true. And guess what I know? I know that the truth that you have known... Your entire life is what is going to sustain you in this VUCA world that you're living in. 
in this VUCA situation that you're existing in, that thing that has been passed from one generation to another. See, this is one of the core things that I believe that North Place Church is supposed to be all about. I believe that we are supposed to be all about one generation passing to another generation the kind of faith that works. The kind of faith that sustains you when everything goes wrong. The kind of faith that makes sense when the world doesn't make sense. The kind of faith that keeps you going when you don't get the answer that you want. The kind of faith that keeps you believing in Jesus when everyone around you tells you you're crazy. See, Mama... Daddy, I believe that's what I believe that's what God desires for you to pass to your children. Grandma, grandpa, I believe that's what God has called you to pass to your grandchildren. I believe that's your I believe that's your legacy. Your legacy is not how complex you can talk about the Bible. Your legacy is not the Facebook post, the Instagram cute little statement that sums it all up in a collection of words that sound real good but does nobody any good at all. I don't think that's your legacy. I don't, I don't think our legacy is fighting for a social or a political position that really isn't going to matter 10 years from now because the world will have passed it by by then. I don't, I don't believe that's your legacy. I don't believe that's my legacy. I believe the legacy that God is calling us to is a life where we live and we die in clarity, with clarity in a world that continues to be... Complex, simple faith sustains us, and get this, it keeps us from shame. I told you we're we're not going to rush our conversation from Second Timothy because there's just so much to to mine out of here. But there's this interesting connection between this issue of being ashamed and being proud. That you see when you read Second Timothy, when you when you read the letter, um, during your daily twenty this week, I want you to read Second Timothy over and over again. I want you to notice, go in and count how many times you see the word shame, and then and then go in and read and look at how many times Paul either directly or indirectly talks about or references what you can what you can be proud of or what you can believe in. See, Timothy was in a situation where he was pastoring a church, the church that had Paul thrown into prison because Paul was supposedly such a fraud. And everybody and everything was saying to Timothy, you, don't, you need to stop standing up for Paul. You need to stop arguing for this gospel that Paul preached and that Paul taught. Paul's a fraud and this gospel's a fraud. You should be ashamed of yourself. You should be ashamed of this gospel. And when Paul starts this letter to Timothy, he says to Timothy, listen, Timothy, I am writing to you in grace and peace, and I'm writing to you from a place of peace. I don't feel any shame. My conscience is clear. 
there's this interesting contrasting that takes place. This comparison that takes place between who should be ashamed and who really is ashamed. Who's doing shameful things and who's doing honorable things. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 14 through 16 says this, Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Get this. A worker who does not need to be ashamed. And one who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Shame is the feeling of humiliation caused by exposure of incongruence. When's the first time that you see shame in human history? When's the first time that you see shame in the Bible? Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, the taking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one thing God said don't do, they did. And when they did it, they ate of the fruit. They realized they were naked. And the Bible says, and they were ashamed. Now you understand up until this point, they had, they had been naked all along. And they were enjoying it. It was good. I'm just letting that, with those like waves of that sink in. There's no problem. But the moment there was incongruency between what they had been told and what they had done, between truth and lie, between living in truth and embracing a lie, the moment there was incongruency, there was shame. Second Timothy was Paul's response to a son who people were attempting to shame. Who people were saying you should be embarrassed to be Paul's son. You should be embarrassed to be preaching and teaching such a simple gospel. It's not that simple, Timothy. You should be ashamed of yourself. Paul says, Timothy, my conscience is clear. I'm not ashamed. Everyone's abandoned me. I'm in prison again. My church planting movement has failed. The people where I've planted churches have turned their back on me. The people that I have, the people that I have invested in no longer, no longer love me or care about me. There's just a few friends who are even willing to support me anymore, but I'm not ashamed. And Timothy, you shouldn't be ashamed either. 
Timothy, you shouldn't live with shame because shame is something that somebody whose life is rooted in truth has, has no capacity to experience. See, when you're, when you're rooted in truth, there's no space for shame in your life. When, when Adam and Eve were living in truth, they were naked and unashamed. When they were in truth, there was no incongruence. The reason you and I feel shame is because there's incongruence in our life between truth, what we know to be true, and how we live. There's complexity around things that are very simple. All year long, the Lord has just put this word in my heart. I, I'm not a prophet, I don't claim to be a prophet, but there's just this word that, that just keeps rumbling over inside of me over and over and over again, and the word is simple. Randy, just keep it simple. I've studied the church, I've studied church growth, I've studied leadership literally my whole life. You want to see somebody make things complicated, I can make things complicated. But what I feel like the Lord just keeps saying to me over and over and over again is just keep it simple. What does the church need to be doing? It needs to be doing what it was told to do from the beginning. It needs to make disciples. What does the church need to be doing? It needs to pray. Well, don't we need to have a 16-week class on prayer and how to hold your head right and say the right? Pray! North Place, we're going to start praying a lot. We're going to start having prayer meetings. And you're either going to come or you're not. But we're going to pray. We've been telling you for a year, we're going to make disciples. And discipleship comes with a cost. Discipleship comes with a cost. We're not going to be consumers, we're going to be disciples. It's simple. It's not complicated. But we've made it complicated. And here's the thing is it's like we're ashamed of the simplicity of the gospel. We're ashamed of the simplicity of saying Jesus is Lord. I cannot solve every social and governmental problem in the world. But I can tell you this. Jesus is Lord. I can't fix Every, everything that is messed up, but I can tell you that God is Father and He is good. I can offer you 16 steps to happiness and wellness in your life, but the truth is, they're only going to work half the time, if that at best. What I really, really need to do is I really need to lock arms with you as a brother or sister in Christ. Pray. Paul says, Timothy, listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed. I'm praying for you, church. I'm praying. I'm praying that God, by His Spirit, will remove the weight, the stain, the pain of shame 
that so many of us feel every day, that we live with every day, that we thought that that career, that that promotion, that that bank account, that that marriage, that that whatever was going to remove that from us, and yet we still live with it, we still put our head on our pillow at night and can't go to sleep because we're haunted by incongruency. My prayer for you, my prayer for me, my prayer for all of us, is that we can embrace a gospel that is simple and that brings freedom. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-4, through 4, Paul says this, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. If you were wondering, is this, is this series of messages for me? Can I just take a break over the next few weeks? Maybe this really doesn't apply to me. Hear what Paul said. This was the situation that Paul was writing into. This is what he said things are going to be like when this message really matters. People will be lovers of themselves. Have you ever existed in a more self-obsessed time in history? People cannot go... Not just a day, they cannot go minutes without checking their status and seeing how many likes they have. I, look, I don't, I don't want to embarrass anybody. I don't, I don't want to, I'm not trying, I lit, I'm not trying to shame anybody. But I, I want to make this very clear. People you know, people you love, people you respect and look up to. world leaders, highly respected thought leaders, grandmas, grandpas, moms, dads, not just 12-year-old little girls. We all live in a world where people constantly need affirmation, constantly need likes, constantly need the heart emoji, constantly need the approval We are lovers of ourselves. Everything is about ourselves. Try building a church and preaching a gospel that doesn't center around making you feel good. See how well you build your church. Tell you what, you'll end up like Paul. That's what you'll end up like. Lovers of themselves. Lovers of money. Boastful, proud, abusive. Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful. Unholy. Without love. Unforgiving. Slanderous, I can say whatever I want about you based on whatever has happened in that moment. It can be proven false. I never have to go back and say I'm sorry or that was wrong. We just move on. The news cycle just moves on. Slanderous. I'll cancel you. I'll reject you. It doesn't matter. There's no accountability for how I treat you. In this world in 2022, without self control, 
our world absolutely promotes us living without self-control. The very thing that makes us different than animals, we are, we are persuaded to reject. Your entire identity is supposed to be whatever your animalistic impulses are, not anything that requires self-control. The gospel of this age is the opposite of the gospel of the kingdom of God. It is the opposite of the gospel of self-control. It is a gospel that says you don't have to have control. In fact, you're not being your true self unless you live without control. Brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. See, this was, this is the end of this letter that Paul is writing to Timothy. This is the context. Paul is saying, Timothy, this is how the, the world is just going to increasingly become like this. This is the VUCA world. Everything is upside down. And in this upside down world, the people who should be ashamed of themselves are the ones who are proud of themselves. And the world is celebrating insanity. The world is celebrating animalistic lack of self-control. The world is celebrating insanity and is proud of insanity and cancels and rejects, and imprisons, and sequesters those things that are truth. That's the VUCA world Timothy was living in. It's the VUCA world that Paul was writing from. And I would submit to you today, it's the world that you're raising your children in. What are you going to do about it? It's the world that you and I live in. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to stick our head in the sand and act like it doesn't exist? It's the world that we have been called to be salt and light to. Are we going to continue to edit the gospel to advance the distortion and the brokenness of this self-serving world that are lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God? Are we going to continue to edit the gospel so that it adds to meanity and still of Christianity? Are we going to continue to preach the gospel of meanity? How to make me richer, how to make me feel better, how to make me look better, how, people, how to make people think more of me? Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, and I'm going to close with this statement. And it's coming from this man who's he's getting to the end of his life. And he has a perspective of the world, has a perspective of life and ministry. He has a perspective of success and failure that young Timothy wouldn't have had at this point in his life. See, maturity understands that faith is measured across time in terms of outcomes, not outputs. 
Paul was writing from prison, the output of that moment of his ministry was one of failure, but the outcome, Paul, the visionary apostle, could look into the future and could see the gospel marching forward through human history, changing lives and making a difference. And while he was in chains and while he was in bondage, he was able to say, my conscience is clear. My hope is not lost because I understand what is happening here. I understand that this life of faith is a marathon. It's not a sprint. I understand the power of the gospel that ultimately brings life, even if I'm living in chains right now. See, there's something about perspective that causes a person to have the capacity to look past the moment that they are in. Many of us, many of us move from crisis of faith to crisis of faith to crisis of faith because we are immature in our faith. We define our faith by our moment instead of our maker. We define our faith by the moment of suffering that we're in rather than the glory of our maker who was and is and is to come. See, something else I want you to notice when you do your daily 20 this week and you read 2 Timothy over and over again, notice how many times Paul talks about suffering. He talks about his suffering and he invites his son, my dear son, come and suffer with me. How many of you parents are willing to look your children in the eye and say to them, come suffer with me. What parent would say that to their child? And yet Paul's maturity and his faith understood that it was in his suffering that Christ would be glorified. And so he was willing to invite his son to come and suffer. Try to build your church in 2022 by inviting people to come and suffer. You're not, you're not going to build a ministry that way, friend. You're not going to build a following. People aren't going to clap for you. They're going to call you crazy. They're going to throw you in jail. They're going to make up all kinds of reasons to discredit you because it doesn't, it doesn't feed the flesh. It doesn't make the flesh feel good about itself. But maturity has perspective. And the perspective says, my moment, my moment, it'll come and go. Some moments will be good. Some moments will be bad. My faith isn't measured by my moment. My faith is measured by my maker. And my maker is greater than this moment. There are moments when I have and there are moments when I don't have. But my, my faith isn't, it isn't defined by this moment. My faith is defined by the glory of my maker. Paul said, my conscience is clear, Timothy, and I invite you to this place. In spite of your suffering, in spite of what you're going through, in spite of how crazy all this is, I invite you. I invite you because I have perspective, and my perspective has told me there are times when it's good, and there's times when it's revival, and there's times when people are following, and there's times when there's outward signs of success, and then there's times where we suffer, but in all of it, in all of it, Jesus is Lord, and God is Father. Father. 